Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sebastian Vettel and Ferrari had just a few days to take stock after the unexpected victory in Singapore, with the battle now resuming in Sochi for the Russian Grand Prix. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and I've just spent the past 20 or so hours making my way from Singapore to Sochi, and joining me from our Richmond base in the UK is someone who's been absent from the podcast for too long, Glenn Freeman. Now, I'm sure you're in good form after what I presume is an enjoyable night watching watching Spurs defeating Lower League Colchester in the Cup, but I didn't see the final result, so I presume you're on a high after that, uh, after that victory. Ed, nobody wants to hear us talk about football. Move on. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, maybe it wasn't as easy a win as it might have been, or perhaps it was an embarrassing loss on penalties. I don't know. You, uh, you obviously don't want to talk about it. Well, also joining me is Stuart Codling, and obviously your past few appearances on the podcast were largely in the capacity of chauffeur, but we have allowed you to actually talk this time, so please use that privilege wisely. But I also mm-hmm. hear there's some sporting fury in your neighbourhood as well. I've taken my white chauffeur's gloves off, and, and I'm presently digesting furiously the news that London Irish hooker Motu Matu has been cited for a high tackle in the Samoa versus Georgia Rugby World Cup game yesterday. Arguably it should have been a red on the field but the TMO talked the ref out of it. So much fury on social media today about refereeing standards once again. That's not like that kind of thing that happens in sport normally. It's a good thing these things aren't put to a vote, eh? We've had enough of experts. That's why we've got you on the podcast, because we have had enough of experts. <laughs> We're not going to talk too much about the catering industry, of which you have uh, 100 years' experience. Or, uh, I was many. not elected to the catering industry either. But you were rejected from it, evidently, for, uh, for, <laughs> for whatever reason. We talked a lot recently on this podcast about Vettel's struggles, Charles Leclerc really asserting himself to become the de facto lead driver of Ferrari. 
Vettel turned the tables in Singapore. So what does that actually change? In terms of Vettel versus Leclerc, I don't think it changes anything. Now Charles has had some time to take stock of it. He'll understand that he had the beating of Seb again. Looking at Vettel's situation in isolation, it was a good result for him and a good result for Ferrari. He can now look at Monza, the disaster of Monza, as the bottoming out of his season. Wipe the slate clean with the victory in Singapore, even if it was fortuitous and can finish the season strongly, hopefully, with what appears to be a strong Ferrari package now. So I don't think this changes anything in terms of the driver dynamic. I still expect that we'll get to Russia and the races that follow and Leclerc can continue the run of form that he's been showing against Vettel. But I think Vettel's going to be less of a shambles than he was before Singapore. Yeah, has he actually turned the tables even? I'm I'm not convinced, given quite a lot of his performance in in Singapore, that, that he has. He was terrible in qualifying. Um, and admittedly, you know, he, he did a good job with the tools available to him in the race to convert it into a victory. But it's not a turning of the table. He's moved it a bit, but he's not actually sort of thrown it over and deposited the contents on the floor. Well, in the context of the race itself, the tables were turned but I don't think he had much to do with it so he hasn't turned any tables he just happened to be on one when it turned and gets a winner's trophy to go with it if only the listeners could see the gesticulations we've made because I was when I was gesticulating I I was uh, sort of flipping a huge table over I I was flipping the table over you're actually rotating one as if it's kind of like this table that we're sitting at now that I can go "Ah, ah, 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 I want the table I want the table so there's there's actually a question of what plane the table is rotating around and turning on so that's uh, that's a whole other dimension but I I guess the point is with Vettel is he only won because he'd qualified third and because he was in that situation to make that extreme undercut. So I don't think it makes any difference in the overall balance of power, but I guess for Vettel, what it might do is just calm everything down a bit, ease the pressure a bit. It'd been over a year without a victory, and that, that's got to make a difference for a for a driver who was under pressure and all he had to look back on over the past year and a bit was just a, a litany of thrown away opportunities after on-track mistakes. Yeah, and that's why it's important for Ferrari as well, because they must have been tearing their hair out, going like, how how is this going from bad to worse for, for this guy? We signed him as a four-time world champion, and he just seemed to be bouncing from blunder to blunder. So they'll just be relieved now, I think, that finally they can say, look, he's won a race, hopefully his head can clear again, and whichever way round they are, if, if Ferrari can chase some more one-twos before the end of the season, that's what they want. And what, even if the championships are gone, and I still think we believe they are and Ferrari believe they are if they can finish this year strongly and deliver on the promise that we saw in pre-season they can take that maybe into next year but the way Vettel was going before Singapore you know the conversation was moving on to how long is he going to keep his drive for and that's not healthy for anyone yeah I think it'll certainly uh, settle that down a little bit and obviously his his contract expires at the end of next year so that's still very very much up in the air but uh, I think from Vettel's perspective he was slower than than Leclerc, and that's that's the thing. If you, if you're Leclerc, you'll look at it and think, well, okay, yeah, I didn't win the race, but that was circumstances that that went against him. Whereas uh, Vettel will know that he uh, he required a little bit of uh, luck, but we do sometimes sometimes see drivers kind of get a lift from this sort of thing, and I guess he'll be uh, he'll be hoping for that. But it's uh, yes, for me, it's still a big question mark about what the long term is for for Vettel at Ferrari. Certainly after the end of uh, end of next year with Leclerc is just the quicker driver, isn't he? We're nodding at each other in the studio here. But yeah, the, the answer to that question is is yes. Uh, the, the team will arrange themselves around the, the, the driver who's quickest in the car and least high maintenance out of it. And from what we've heard, 
Vettel's been a little bit high maintenance, a bit highly strung out of the car. He's certainly been like that in it, made a lot of high profile errors. Uh, and although Leclerc has chafed against uh, some of the on-track decisions, some of the strategies, he's, he's obviously not liked being told to suck it up in, in second place in, in Singapore. Um, he's kind of calmed down after the fact and come out in support of the team and shown great maturity there. So I, I, I can sort of see him becoming the force around which the team arrange themselves. And the fact is, his form recently hasn't been a flash in the pan. We knew... Well, we thought he was this good before he got to F1. We were pretty sure he was this good when he was at Sauber last year and he delivered almost immediately in terms of performance in the car for Ferrari this year. That's just going to keep building and that just means that the team is going to move more and more towards him, as Codders says, because he's he's going to be stronger. He's going to be stronger at the end of this year than he is now and I think he'll go into next season with a full year of Ferrari under his belt and could be a real force to be reckoned with. We've seen how drivers, Max Verstappen being the obvious example, as soon as they get their feet under the table at a top team, they're that good now that they don't actually need several seasons to build themselves up. And there's every reason to believe that a driver like Verstappen or Leclerc, given the right car, you don't think anymore they're so young they can't put a championship fight together. I think really since the days of Lewis Hamilton bursting onto the scene, We've got used to, if you're good enough, you're old enough and you can do it immediately. Yeah, and the other thing that Ferrari have got to bear in mind is that they're under a lot of pressure uh, from expectations at home, um, shareholders, Fiat Group, etc. Also, the, the media hauling themselves over the hauling, hauling themselves, the the media hauling them over the coals all the time. Every time they underachieve, they really can't afford another season with a decent car and underachieving with it. They need to actually bag a world championship pretty soon. Otherwise, we'll be looking at more hirings and firings. I suppose. Yeah, always the way at Ferrari, isn't it? And I think carrying that momentum into next season is really important. I, I do think, as an aside that Ferrari weren't too disappointed with how things went in Singapore. I think it, it suits them for Vettel to have had a win. And I think what would have been interesting is, let's say, in a in a, in a parallel universe, Vettel was the one who was actually quicker and ahead and, and he got undone by a, a similar undercut kind of reversal. Might they have switched it back around there just to give the driver who was struggling the win he needed? I guess that's uh, it's impossible to say. I don't think they did it. They did, didn't do it deliberately. It just was one of those forces of happenstance. But, but it was a convenient result, from, wasn't it? Definitely, definitely. And that's why I think there was no way they were going to switch it back round because you can you imagine what that would have caused. Okay, they've got a disgruntled Leclerc, but Vettel would have been absolutely furious because he can just simply say, well, I executed the undercut, good in lap, quick out lap, and then later was mega in traffic. So uh, what, what on earth are you doing? That could have just sent him into another spiral. I like the idea of, of someone having to weigh up a disgruntled Vettel versus a disgruntled Leclerc. It's, it's quite amusing. Almost as much as I like the idea of a great parallel universe, great trope of sci-fi. Well, it's a good chance to, to kind of do little experiments, isn't it? You can back-to-back experiment to different situations, see what happens. I'm sure I'm sure science will let us do that. That'd be problematic, wouldn't it? And journalists are running around creating using parallel universes to, to run alternative Grand Prix. That would uh, make the whole I, thing I, much I more I love complicated. the idea of a parallel universe which in, in which would be signified by Ed having different eyebrows and pointy ears and looking a bit satanic. Yeah, that would be the uh, the budget uh, makeup parallel uh, parallel. He could universe. bring back his old goatee, couldn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You could actually look like some of your old um, uh, pictures in Autosport. Until very recently, my uh, my FIA uh, one, the, the little 
photo that pops up on the screen when you when you wave your pass in to get into the F1 paddock was from about 12 years ago when I had some particularly poor quality facial hair which uh, I, I quite soon after got rid of so uh, yeah that's uh, so you know the evil the evil goatee exists um we should also talk though codders about the ferrari form because singapore was a surprise upgrades there so are you expecting ferrari to be there again in sochi do you think that singapore gave us definitive evidence that that's going to be the case for the rest of the year now uh, I, I'm very wary about saying yes, certainly to any question of definitiveness, because to, to my mind, there are, there are a couple of question marks still remaining. Um, firstly, about the the influence on their performance in Singapore that the improvement in suspension kinematics had. Um, we had some great um, close up pictures from from our spy photographers about um, changes to the front end of the Ferrari's uh, suspension configuration. And certainly from your observations at turn five, the, it, it looked like part of their advantage was getting a, a lovely smooth turn through through five and getting a good exit and, and onto the back straight, which was giving them uh, a lot of lap time. Now, at Sochi, which is a, a smooth surface, you, you don't really use curbs, there aren't bumps to speak of, different types of corners as well. I don't see that as being as much of an advantage. And, and also, probably a little bit more critically, the jury is still out, for me at least, on Ferrari's tyre usage. That car has been harder on its tyres so far this season uh, at all sorts of circuits and at Singapore we didn't see any definitive evidence that it's actually better on its tyres because when 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 the clerk um, was was told to push on on the soft tyres he'd started with he couldn't neither could Lewis Hamilton uh, and also we didn't see whether there was going to be any degradation uh, towards the end of the race because we had that rapid fire sequence of safety cars that kind of got them out of jail free so to, to my mind it, it's definitely not definitive I think this weekend if it does go well then we can come away saying wow they really have sorted this car out but I think Ferrari were right to be cautious after Singapore where they said this is a very strange track. It's had a history, even when F1 has become incredibly predictable, Singapore has tended to be capable of throwing up a, a surprise result. So Ferrari are wise to not necessarily think they've cracked it, but I reckon they'll, in the back of their minds, they'll be very happy with how that upgrade performed and they'll be secretly really hoping that it performs on a, a more conventional track. I mean, Sochi, of course, is, is very smooth and that might take away for one weekend tyre issue because nobody, I don't think anyone can chew through a set of tyres around Sochi no matter how hard they try. But yeah, I don't think we have answers yet for how good this upgrade is. I think the suspension observation that you made and the things, Ed, you were saying from trackside really suggest that that could have played as big a part as, as the aero updates did because there was still an element, particularly when Hamilton was following the Ferraris in the race, we just said he's got no chance of overtaking them because their power advantage on the straights was still making such a difference. So Singapore could have been a perfect mix of, of different factors that actually mean that the upgrade wasn't the main thing that worked. It's clearly taken them in the right direction, but this weekend will hopefully give us a better indication of just how good that car is now. Well, the fact that Ferrari had to keep such a tight leash of that race, they, they shut the whole race down as much as they could in order to avoid letting anybody have a chance to to attack them. That that sort of shows that they were concerned about their ability to maintain their position, concerned about the tyres, concerned about the about the pace. And it's funny, isn't it? We've I'm not sure there's ever been a time when 
we've seen a team have three consecutive wins and they're looking all conquering at the moment, but they've all been so narrow. They've been really, really difficult uh, ones to, to actually pull off because obviously we've seen Mercedes coming back at them in, in, in the races. So Ferrari's, Ferrari's in an interesting position. I think Sochi will tell us a, a little bit more, but it's, I guess the important thing is they've at least taken the pressure off. I mean, getting three wins on the bounce, including the Monza win, will have made life a lot easier for them. But yeah, Sochi, I'd be quite surprised if we saw them in quite such a strong position. They certainly can't do what they did in Singapore with having a a slightly, uh, I mean, what we saw from Leclerc, a slightly oversteery car to get it on pole and then just sort of parking at the front. It's not easy to overtake at Sochi, but it's it's a different kind of challenge. So, yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised to see them uh, struggling a little bit more. But then again, they surprised us in in Singapore. They surprised themselves, actually, come to to mention it. And I think, you mentioned there the nature of the victories and how tight they were. In a way, that's that's been good for Ferrari because, as Mattia Bonotto mentioned, they've thrown away so many really good opportunities in the first half of the year. And certainly, whether it's been through our, our journalists writing things, our experts on podcasts or on videos, we've been pretty critical of Ferrari for the amount of chances they've dropped. So for them to execute these three tight races should give them a lot of confidence. But as you both say, I don't think it tells us quite yet exactly how good that car is and it certainly suggests that you know the three defeats is no disaster for Mercedes either the, you know, Lewis Hamilton in particular has been right there in all of these races and the cards could have fallen very differently with only a few small details in each race going going in a different direction but that like I say that I think that's a credit to Ferrari um, and to over the course of the three races both of its drivers because when the opportunity's been there and they've had to execute they have, which after the season they've been having, could have been very easy for them to drop the ball. What do you make, Codders, of the of the Ferrari situation? Do you think that now they've got these wins, this this season can at least be maybe qualified success is strong? But at the at the mid season break, it was it been a disastrous season really, considering the expectations. But at least they've managed to bank a series of wins, and even if they don't win again, they have had some strong showings, winning in marginal races, and showing they can actually mix it with with Mercedes and Red Bull I think it was very necessary for them uh, and for Formula 1 itself really like Glenn says they'll have taken confidence from it and confidence feeds into your ability to kind of make difficult decisions at critical moments and what we what we saw particularly in Singapore was that they made a very smart strategic call at the right time and or at least the call they made played out well uh, for them so it'll empower them to 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 be a bit bolder uh, in future and it, it'll give them a little bit more sort of perceived value in their decisions but also for the sport it's good because the narrative we want to be showing is is not one of continued dominance by one team um also i, I think in 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 terms of us as as media it's, and for the fans as well, this is actually quite an exciting time of year because even if the, the, the actual championship battle seems to be winding down, it's a time when there's sort of new storylines coming out. So if if Ferrari have actually got over some of the baked-in technical problems they've had over the first half of the season, that actually means that a lot of those sort of captive narratives that we've talked about and fallen back on over the past six months are kind of gone and we've got new stories to tell and it's, it's good for, for us in in terms of, of finding things to talk about, but also for fans to engage in when there's several more races left in the season. 
I think you raised a really good point there, Ed, in your question to Collars, where you said, does this kind of fix the perception of their season? I always think that if you're going to have a season of two halves, you want the second half to be the good one because that's what people remember more. Yeah, peak end effect, isn't it? Yeah, if Ferrari had won the opening three races, as some were predicting they might, and then not won anything for the rest of the season, those wins would be forgotten in how Ferrari's season is is remembered and reported at the end of the year. But this little burst, as you said, Ed, even if they don't win again, they came back from the summer break and people remember that run of races. And I always think that even with us, when we grade the drivers and we rank the drivers' performance at the end of the season, I always get the impression that someone who's finished strong will end up probably higher than someone who's maybe had the same season, just in reverse, where they've started strong and then finished on a sort of downward spiral. So I think momentum does come into how we perceive a season. It's that, it's that classic thing of you're only as good as your last race. I do think, though, um, and very, very, when I'm at a local park run and I'm at the finishing line waiting for Mrs. Codling to toddle through and you see someone who's um, sort of taken a bit over the 30-minute mark to do the 5K and they come absolutely flying through the finishing line with a sprint, you kind of think, well, if you had that much left in the tank, you could have gone quicker over the, over the balance of the 5K. So sometimes finishing strong isn't such a clever thing. From that, I take that's what you're saying to Mrs. Codling when she finishes. Uh, I think I'd get handbagged for that. <laughs> she runs with her handbag. <laughs> She's not Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> Maybe clotheslined, yes. Wallops. <laughs> Wallops, yes. Either way, it sounds uh, all very, very, uh, very dangerous. But so, uh, yeah, I think. Um uh, that whole thing of, of momentum does mean something kind of internally, doesn't it? Because everybody's just a little bit happier with the direction they're going and the way they're working. You're less uncertain about the about the directions you're going. You can be confident in, in the things you've changed, whereas if you get lost, it, it has a much more negative effect. But, you know, we can only really tell if what's happening now is a good thing for next season when we get to the start of next season because they may just lose all that uh, all that momentum but it's certainly not a bad thing at uh, this stage that's for for sure uh, we should also have a little look ahead to this weekend in terms of the other teams now Colors Mercedes has only won two of the last seven races. In fact, we've had two wins for Mercedes, two wins for Red Bull and three wins for Ferrari, which is uh, quite a nice split over over seven races, but Mercedes hasn't been the dominant force. Um, strategic in, uh, decisions in Singapore, they weren't right in, in hindsight. There were reasons for them, but they were a bit conservative and, and just put themselves in a, in a bad position. Do you think this is seeing the team struggle under what might be the most sustained period of pressure it's had in the in the V6 turbo hybrid era? I think sometimes you can look at a decision and say, in hindsight, it was either wrong or not right. And, and there's a grey area between wrong and not right. Whereas at the time, that decision might have at least seemed to be right or, or at least not wrong. Well, I'm starting to sound like Donald Rumsfeld here, <laughs> aren't I? But the, decisions, the decisions, by definition, always seem right at the time because they, nobody makes a deliberately bad decision, do they? Yeah, exactly. And that, that one didn't seem that right at the time, though, did it? No, no. It, it, and it cleaved to the general pattern. And, and it's... I won't say that it's been like this all the time, but there is a general pattern for Mercedes of being risk averse throughout the the turbo hybrid era. They've made very few obvious clangers, such as you know the the virtual safety car calculation cock up in in Australia last was last year, yeah, last year. Um, but if you've got the fastest car on the grid. Generally speaking, you don't have to take as many risks. You shouldn't be taking the risks because there's there's less of an upside. So so I can understand why they've become 
less risk averse um and Another thing is that while they have looked shaky under pressure, they have made quite good calls uh, under pressure at other times. So you look at Hungary this year, they did converted Lewis to a two-stopper and, and won a race that they might otherwise not have won. But there so, wasn't much risk there, was there? Because no, the Hamilton was a huge and Verstappen yeah. were four laps ahead of everybody else. So it was dropping back. And if it doesn't work, he finishes second. And if it does work, he's going to get back up to Verstappen. There was no... That that strategy would have been a gamble if he'd had to drop back to fifth, overtake some people and then come back through. It was... We could all see it, couldn't you? You only had to look at the timing screen and go, that gap's huge. Drop him into it and just see what happens. Yeah, that that is the difference between the Ferrari call in Singapore and the Mercedes call in, in, in Hungary, which was that there, there was that huge gap to drop into because there was no Bottas there, no Gasly there, people who otherwise should have been hanging around in that gap. Where, whereas in, in Singapore, it was, what, 10 seconds, the, the gap? And there was room for about one car to drop in into there and, and make something of it. Whether Ferrari's decision was accidental or deliberate or they were just plugging the gap Gap, um, is something that a team can lay claim to after the fact and say, yeah, that was a great idea when it, it might actually just have been serendipitous. But once again, it was another case of, of Mercedes being a little bit risk averse. Well, I mean, that gap, that gap was fairly obvious. Um, it was there to be taken if they wanted to go for it. The thing that surprised me, and, and Gary Anderson uh, in a piece on autosport.com had a bit of a go about this, about Mercedes, because he felt that it was very strange that with Hamilton, they were worried about him not being able to clear some slower traffic because the the traffic was what Lance Stroll, Daniel Ricciardo, Antonio Giovinazzi, Pierre Gasly, all slower cars. And they seemed to be worried that Hamilton would take time to, too much time to get through them and would be exposed. So I, I guess that was the the strange thing. They almost didn't back the fact that they they should have they should have they couldn't prove at that stage that they had the fastest car in race conditions, but. The balance of probability was that they probably did, and I almost feel like they needed to to kind of back that. But at the same time, I understand the conditions that made them not want to at the time. Yeah. Well, they, they were sort of too averse to that potential downside, and maybe you could argue that it blinded them. It's, it's difficult to say that without having been in the room with them, as it were, and, and privy to the decision-making process. But it kind of, from the outside looking in, would appear that they, you know, they that they were a bit too scared of that particular downside, and it blinded them to to the what actually happened in the end, which was was losing track position. And it just seemed obvious that staying out. I know they could say, oh, well, what if there's a safety car? Then great. But I think Lewis said on the radio as he crossed the finish line, he basically said, we don't turn second into fourth. And mm. if he if they'd come in when everyone else had, there was obviously the chance to at least jump Leclerc and you know maybe still get a podium out of it. I, I still think there's a legacy for Mercedes of too long spent just racing itself and working out how to pit its cars versus each other. Yeah. That when they have the variables of having to race everybody else, I'm I, I'm loath to say that it's a problem of the people making the decisions. But I almost wonder if the process is too ponderous, because in the past they have had plenty of time and they could afford, particularly during the Hamilton and Rosberg years, you could probably get your pit stop wrong by two or three laps. But as long as each car did something similar, you weren't really disadvantaging anyone. And it didn't matter if cars that are 20 seconds behind you make up five during the pit stops. But now, when you can't afford that that sort of window of, of getting it a bit wrong, is it just that the discussions the pit walls having with the people back at the factory are looking at the data, does it all take too long? You know, why why did they fail 
to spot the opportunity to come in a bit earlier? Why did they not feel the need to, to like I say, to react and potentially cause Leclerc even more trouble? And the option they went for in the end was just one that, again, yeah, we sit could back we, and do nothing. We yeah. could all see. I looked at it at the time, and we've referred to this in the past. It's it's the old Ferrari Kimi Raikkonen strategy of oh, we've kind of missed the boat here. We'll just leave you out and see if something comes back to us, which Ferrari doing it with their second car became a bit of a running joke, uh, unfortunately for Raikkonen. Mercedes doing it with Lewis Hamilton, that doesn't sit right, really. So I think they, they missed the boat and were then frozen in how to how to react to that. It's the strategic equivalent of, um, back in the day, that programme Property Ladder, when people spent too much money doing up their house and ended up having to live in it for a year while the market caught up. Uh, there's you, you back yourself into a corner where you, you, you have fewer choices, naturally, don't you? And, and, and maybe... I, th- I think that there's been quite a few instances over the past few years where when something like this has happened, um, either, either Toto Wolf or after the fact James Vowles will allude to the fact that discussions were taking place or we were debating something at the time something happened and we missed the opportunity. You look back at Germany and the, the pit stop for Argo with Hamilton was all because they were debating what to do with Bottas and that blinded them to what was going on with Lewis. So maybe like you say, Glenn, there's there's not enough of a, of a short straight line between the strategic thinkers and the people who put that into action. That's the thing, I think. It's the decisions on the fly where they, there clearly seems to be some sort of process problem that is all too slow. If the, if the race is playing out, I'm, I'm sure they've got great strategies before the race and they've got plan A, plan B and plan C. And as long as they can stick to one of those, they'll execute a race properly. So there's no question of saying, you know, the strategists don't know what they're doing. They can't work a race out, that sort of thing. But I do think when it just needs that one moment for somebody to go, right, this is what's going on. This is what's happened that we weren't expecting. Let's react immediately too often we end up sitting here analysing those things from Mercedes more than we do from the other teams. And of course they did have a problem when they, they did it over a, a Hamilton pit stop in Sochi last year but there was a whole problem last year with the team orders for uh, for Valtteri Bottas they sort of said they wouldn't do them in the race and then a race situation arose where they needed to for championship reasons so Bottas was a little bit frustrated but that, that does kind of bring us back to the question of into this weekend is Bottas going to be the guy to to kind of spearhead Mercedes because Sochi is very much one of his tracks he's already won there in the past he's had pole position in the past at Sochi he's always been strong there if there's any race he's going to win against Hamilton in the rest of the season it's going to be this one isn't it I do think this is Bottas territory and I would hope that as you say although Mercedes and Hamilton haven't been on a particularly great winning streak of late his championship lead remains relatively safe so I'd hope that this time if Bottas gets himself in front he would at least be allowed to keep the victory Um, and that'd be a nice little bit of payback for for last year I think Mercedes at least they were honest about what they did last year it was it was probably being overly safe you know Lewis still wrapped up the championship with a few races to go that's going to happen again this year so it's up to Valtteri really you know he started the year so well and it seems so long ago now that he's on the radio you know telling people f you and all of this sort of thing we're like wow Bottas has come out he's grown a beard he's really fierce now and that's all been eroded over the course of the year by Hamilton's brilliance Bottas struggling to stay on top of the car and then the the Valtteri it's James message I, I thought that was the that was the ultimate sign that the feisty Bottas we saw at the start of the year 
you know, what we've got now is just a shadow of that because Merck is on the radio to him saying, we're not even going to ask you to move out of the way later. We just want you to drive slower now. And I know there was the element of keeping Albon behind as well, but I think that just shows where Bottas sits in the pecking order, where he's viewed by the team and probably the reason he's he's kept his drive and driver market chat is for another podcast, I'm sure, Ed, but I think Bottas is the dutiful number two but I hope for his sake that he, if he puts himself in a position to win this weekend he's allowed to it, it all depends on whether he's grown a 12 year old Ed Straw style facial goatee again and brought a packet of porridge yeah, that's the, the key question with uh, Bottas. But in fact, his, his form did start to downturn again when he got rid of the, the what we call the evil Bottas goatee. So maybe that's uh, something he should he should think about. But we should say he does go well at these sorts of tracks. He's very good on the circuits that are the quite smooth, low grip tracks, the ones where the kind of the front end isn't quite so razor sharp because Hamilton always likes to sort of really pivot the car around the front end. Bottas sort of feels it a little bit more the way in and on, on these sorts of circuits Mexico's another one Austria to a certain extent these are the ones where Bottas tends to, to to come good so I imagine if you're Valtteri you'll be going right this is the weekend I'll I'll go there and I'll uh, and I'll I'll get a win and I think it's it's probably quite important for him because it's been a, a very long time it's Baku was the last one he, he he won so after winning two out of four he's he's kind of on track to to win none of the last 17 which which will disappoint him so what is it exactly ed about bottas and those sort of tracks and those sort of conditions i think you've talked in the past that he tends to be a driver who looks pretty good in fp1 when the track's green of those circuits that you mentioned are those ones that don't necessarily rubber in perhaps over the weekend in some of the ways that the other tracks do why why do they suit bottas so well yeah, well, they're, they're, they're fundamentally lower grip surfaces. So I, I think if you, if you look at the way Hamilton drives, he's he likes a you could maybe say a very decisive kind of turning. So you know, turning the front tires grip up very quickly, you get them loaded really fast, and then you can kind of pivot to rotate the car around the front wheels. So the the, the sort of rear the rear rotates, you get into the corner. Bottas isn't quite so good on that that sort of thing. He he likes it a little bit more, a, a slightly longer, should we say. Sort of turning phase to load up the tires and you can feel it very very well and I think that's that that helps him and the 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 low grip surfaces they do they do rubber in to a certain extent but they're rubbering in from a from a lower from a lower starting point and it's all down to the 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 asphalt that's laid on it there's there's slightly different grain tarmacs that are used uh so you 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 get different levels of grip at different uh at different circuits so yeah it is connected to the fact that he's he's so good on on green circuits I often call him the green track world champion because he always looks really really good in uh in fp1 i can remember codders you and i standing at the, the the first few corners at mexico a few years ago in fp1 and bottas was a, was a standout in oh, uh, yeah. in, in those con- those conditions so i think i think that's what it's down to it's it, it it's not necessarily that that bottas is is sort of so much better fundamentally in those conditions but i think hamilton is kind of his his potency is slightly reduced so you do see a little bit more of a a swing when Bottas is kind of closer to 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 the maximum should we say so it again raises the question of what would happen if Bottas was in a team where he was the the sort of sole focus and would you have a slightly different kind of uh balance and where it wouldn't be built around having a having that strong front end and then rotate the rear that way so it's it's an interesting uh it's interesting question but it's a, a phenomenon that's um that the team's very, very aware of, and they noticed very, very quickly uh, when he went there in in, in 2017. So, yeah, an, an interesting one. 
Well, in a moment, we're going to hurl ourselves into the murky waters of the ever-controversial reverse grids idea. Should F1 be willing to try new things like this, or should it try and maintain the tradition of the way the grid has been formed? And of course, who gets to make that decision? Fans, drivers, team bosses? Complicated question. We'll be back shortly to discuss that. One thing that we can be fairly confident of, whatever happens, is that Bottas will be up near the sharp end of the grid. And of course, grid positions and the way the, the grid is formed have, have become a little bit of a talking point recently. But there's been this talk about the reverse grid qualifying races. There's this plan to have an experiment with a small number, maybe talking about three reverse grid qualifying races next season. So you have a, a shortened race on Saturday afternoon in which it's reverse championship order and then that sets the grid so you try and have race through as, as much as you can so just to mix up the grid it's not it's not proving popular with drivers quite a few fans don't like it but glenn do you think this is a, a sacred cow worth taking on i do because purely in the name of of testing and i think ross braun's logic that you know some of these things are so drastic they're worth trying and i think trying it in a, a more controlled manner because we can look back to changes that have been made to qualifying in the past, but it was never a trial. It was brought in. It was what was supposed to, what we were supposed to have indefinitely from that point. And they, those have been a disaster. And a lot of people's argument here is that qualifying is actually quite good. Why are we messing around with it? But I, I do understand the logic of there are stable regulations for 2020. We want to see if there's anything we should do for 21. Let's try it in the real world. We know F1 has been developing its own simulator software to try some of these things out but i suspect what this tells us is that they can't get the definitive answers they want from the simulations they just know that too many things will happen differently in the real world and it could even be that not necessarily reverse grids but with any of the other things they want to try it's very hard to second guess the teams as well and you could end up with things they want to try and then they happen in the real world and we get another monza q3 situation where everyone's so the teams are so busy second guessing themselves and messing about that something that would be completely unforeseen in a simulation ends up looking dreadful in the real world i think the trouble here with the reverse grids is as you mentioned ed the drivers are being critical of it majority of fans as far as i can tell certainly the hardcore fans don't like it that i suspect this one's doomed from the off because i believe that f1 is so hung up on the moment at the moment on f1 fan feedback you know it's, it's all about fill out this survey tell us what you think about this and they're getting the opinions of the most opinionated people not necessarily the wider global yeah. fan it's base a self-selecting group as well isn't it very much so and i think what will happen here is people will tell you that they hate this before it happens and no matter how good it is if it is good they'll still tell you to hate it because they're, they're going to be so, they're so entrenched already in their dislike of it and I think the drivers coming out and criticising it as well before it's happened it's just going to make those fans feel even stronger in their opinions and I don't want to criticise the drivers for saying what they think but I think it's very interesting that drivers if they end up at the back of the grid on a Saturday quite often tell us that they're looking forward to the race and driving through the field and that sort of thing and then we've got the guys at the front traditionally at the front now saying to us that that's not what they want so i worry it's going to be like the 2014 switch to the hybrid engines where a few drivers and bernie eccleston slagged it off and then the fans just went yeah we hate it as well and those engines have never recovered from that negative feedback that came in before we'd even had a race to my mind it's worth trying simply because 
um, it, it, it's, it's all in the spirit of just rigorously analysing something rather than assuming a position and, and, and letting that position dictate whether you decide whether it's a success or failure. We're, we're speaking entirely in theory until it's been done in practice. And I don't think we should set quite so much store by what people think, no matter how how little or how much weight their opinions are thought to hold and and to my mind whether drivers like something or not is definitely not an arbiter of whether you should try it or not because they're just people with opinions and very often you you ask drivers what they think about something they'll tell you something and it'll turn out to be completely wrong so for instance a couple of years ago the introduction of the hypersoft tire drivers were saying oh this is brilliant let's try this in qualifying let's have it everywhere let's just give us the fastest tyre and see what happens. Well, we give them the fastest tyre and let's look at what happens. We have the Monaco Grand Prix where they're chugging around slowly, not wanting to lean on it at all. And you get a slow and processional race. And afterwards, all those people who were saying, oh, we must use this tyre all the time, are saying, oh God, let's never go back to that again. It was terrible. It's the same with the 2017 regulation changes. A lot of drivers pushed for that. I think it was the older generation, the Jensen Buttons and the Fernando Alonso, who I remember the V10s and we were flat out all the time. We need faster cars. We need better aero. And then they all got in there and went, oh, we can't overtake. We can't get within four seconds of the car in front. Well, we knew that was going to happen. So Codders is absolutely right that you can't take these small sample sets of people and say that their opinion is gospel. They're going to be right. With these qualifying races, I think more important than any fan surveys they're going to do afterwards the thing to look at will be the TV numbers. And I think that's why it's good that they're looking at doing perhaps three, you said, Ed. Because if you do three of those through the season, if the first two are quite good, word will start to get around. And then if you find out that on the third trial, the TV numbers are way up, I think that is the most informative thing. Because then word has got out that something good happens on F1 weekend on a Saturday, and people who wouldn't traditionally watch qualifying or may not even watch the normal Grand Prix will go... I'm going to check this out. And that's the piece of data that I think will be more important than what Codd has described as the self-selecting group who want to have an opinion on it. Those people are important because they're the most dedicated part of the fan base and they can't be overlooked, but they shouldn't necessarily be speaking for everybody in the world who might, may potentially watch F1. Yeah, you know, a, a Twitter pitchfork mob with the best will in the world should not be allowed to dictate policy uh, or or even be the, the yardstick by which the success or failure uh, of a project um, is judged. And, and as Glenn says, this is not something we can measure in terms of likes and retweets. It's going to be in terms of the of, of the TV audience and whether that grows, which is what Liberty want at, at the end of the day. And to my mind, anyone who talks about the good old days or says it was better back then um, just should be tasered because um, they're boring. And generally speaking, the good old days weren't that good. In the 1960s, which is the good old days for some people, you'd have one driver on the lead lap and other people minutes behind and only eight cars left running. So that in no way at all was better. It's it's never a good argument just to have tradition as a thing. You know, qualifying was brought in at Monaco in 1933. That was the first time it happened. Achille Varzi uh, got pulled before that. It was usually done by, uh, by, by random ballots. I, I don't think you have to consider qualifying to be completely inviolable that's the first point secondly I don't necessarily have a problem with the way it is now and continuing it that way but I do think 
there is a reverse grid conversation and analysis that's worth doing because it is something that creates a lot of the right conditions that uh, for the racing people want. The third point on it is that I think people misunderstand the objective. It's not about allowing somebody in a slow car to win because they won't, but what it will do is that battle for the win. Let's say there's a Saturday race. The battle for the win between Lewis Hamilton, Sebastian Vettel, Charles Leclerc, it will start when they're coming through traffic. And because they're going through traffic, there will be opportunities for drivers to make a difference. So, you know, they'll be, they'll be going through together, but Hamilton might think, oh, I've got a chance to to, to nip, my, nip my way past Leclerc here. So it... That that's the thing. It, it it kind of increases the range of abilities needed to needed to uh, to to come through, and I don't think it'll have the impact people uh, people think. The downsides, of course, are you'd have to lose qualifying itself, which is the the biggest argument against it. I would say, unless you have a separate qualifying session for points or something, because that that one hundred percent all out lap is a, is a great is a great highlight. People tend to look at it from a slightly skewed perspective, so it's, it's worth considering. And I think if there were, let's say, there's three qualifying Saturday races next year, I think loads of people will will tune in to watch it. So it'll be fascinating to see what happens, and it could also potentially create a condition where F1 could have a, a qualifying race that goes out on free-to-air TV or something, or just something to to allow people to have a bit more of a access to, to what's going on. So there's a lot of things going on that need to be considered. My final point, before I uh, filibuster to the end of this podcast, is that I'm all for drivers getting involved in this. We praised Lewis Hamilton when he was getting a bit statesmanlike earlier in the year about the rules. But both Vettel and Hamilton basically said that oh, well, they need to concentrate on fixing the proper problems with Formula 1, not this kind of gimmicky stuff, was a broad paraphrase of the the position. That's not exactly what they said. But the simple fact is that they are both working for teams who are a major force in preventing F1 making changes as big as need to happen. So they need to be a little bit careful that they're not the ones, uh, that they're, they're not, that they, they don't have the moral high ground automatically in this because Ferrari and Mercedes, as two of, two of the three most powerful organisations in F1, are a, are a block on some of the things that might, that F1 might like to do. To return to point three, Ed, all great points, but just to briefly return to point three, some great Monaco 1933 qualifying knowledge there. Did you pick it up from that excellent book, The Life Monaco Grand Prix by some bloke or other? Yes, that's uh, that terrible author. I, f- I forget what his name is. I hear, I hear he's normally just a taxi driver driving driving podcasts around usually but uh, I'll, I'll let you get away with that plug i have to say it is a uh, it's it, it is a, a better book than i've done than i've just suggested so uh, don't necessarily rule out uh, rule out rushing out and uh, and buying it but actually monaco does raise a problem about reverse grids because a reverse grid race at monaco would be a bit of a problem but you know glenn they've got to be open to considering at least different race formats i find it very frustrating when everyone says change 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 make it better and then as soon as they go a little bit extreme everyone's like oh no tradition what's also made this debate interesting is the fact that the calendar keeps expanding and codders i know you've written about this recently and one of the things you highlighted was the 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 human toll it could take having that many races but you did. You, I think you referenced the NASCAR calendar as well. You know, thirty-six championship rounds, and they do all get a bit samey. So, if we're going to have twenty-five races, do they all need to follow exactly the same format? Is that is that really delivering value to someone who wants to watch all of them? Is it going? Does it make them feel special enough to get new people to watch? So, I like the idea of some different formats. Um, there are many sports where you do have to be a master of different types of craft within your field. 
Um, so I don't have a problem with that at all. And back to Cotter's original point, I think the big thing here is let's let's do a real world test. I I suspect it'll be very good, but I'm also more than prepared for the fact that trying out a reverse grid in the real world and giving the teams a few opportunities to do it, it could be like the high deg tires where it seemed brilliant at the start when they didn't know what they were doing. And then all we got was pace management and all the things that we now hate about high deg tyres because the variables have been taken away. It could be that teams find a way to conservatively manage a reverse grid race or you know they wait until the pit stops and they because they may be better on their tyres, the quick cars, they wait for the midfield runners to drop out of the way, do another 10 laps and just jump them all that way. And something could happen that even supporters of reverse grids go actually that's a bit rubbish now isn't it but we only find it out by trying it so I, I love the idea that F1's finally going to be prepared to have a go at these things and I, I really just hope that this this whole ruling by committee thing that whether it's listening to the fans the teams the drivers or whoever I hope that F1 doesn't kind of freeze itself in a position where it doesn't end up doing anything because it wants everyone to be unanimous and you're not going to get unanimous support for any of these ideas so Let's take a look at it. and uh, But I think people like Ross Braun, if he thinks he sees something in it, he needs to be prepared to take a hard stance against the teams on the rules and potentially against the drivers on things like race format. Yeah, very much so. And I think there needs to be a willingness to, to be bold with things. And I, I don't really like dismissing ideas that could work out of hand. I mean, I, this is very different to that elimination qualifying idea, which actually it took about half a second of analysis to work out what was going to happen in that. That was a that was a stupid idea. There, there, there can be unintended consequences. Sometimes there are obvious un, unintended consequences, but let's at least be, uh, be open on it, should we say. The only thing I would say as, on reverse grids is it has to be equitable, by which I mean I'm dead against anything random. I don't approve. Uh, some people have suggested random ballots, but I, that to me is a is a nonsense because over the course of a year, it won't necessarily even itself out. I mean, over twenty plus races, reasonable chance it will, but that's not quite big enough set a sample set to be absolutely sure it will. So I, I don't really uh, approve of that. But we should just briefly before we finish look at the driver market codders. Uh, four teams have still got openings. Obviously, Haas confirmed Roman Grosjean, so. That's that's has uh, closed down in terms of the, the driver lineup for next year. So Alfa Romeo, Williams, and both Red Bull teams have still got spaces. So Nico Hulkenberg, he's trying to keep himself on the grid. Do you expect him to still have a drive next year? It's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, it, we talk about the driver market, but this is kind of more like the last turkey on the shelf, isn't it? Because if you look at the the teams that have got openings, I'm I'm not sure they've got openings into which Nico Hulkenberg would fit. So, just in terms of the notes I've scribbled down on paper, you've got Alpha. I, I love the way I've I've begun with Alpha because that's um, first in the alphabet, and then I've gone straight to Williams. But there we go. Alpha have got you know the. You know they're going to stick with 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 Kimi Raikkonen for sure. So, car two, um, Joe Venazzi, as certain commentators call him. Uh, you know we've we've talked about him, haven't we, Ed? About how he sort of smuggles in incompetence in races that tend not to be spotted, and he's had a few undistinguished races, but. He's he's kind of doing that thing that that became a bit of a cliche with Italian drivers over the past few years, which is perking up his performances come contract time. So he was he was, did a decent performance in Singapore. So is is he is he nailed on for that seat? No, but 
I can't really see many other candidates for that because Mick Schumacher, who's the other Ferrari Driver Academy uh, approved candidate for it, someone who's obviously being groomed for Formula One, uh, to my mind, he's just not done enough in F2 to justify elevation. I'd, I'd like to see him do another year in F2 to either prove himself or learn more about it because you know his his first win of the year was from a reverse grid without wishing to get into reverse grids again um wasn't that impressive let's let's put it that way a win is a win but from a reverse grid in f2 you know, it's, um, it, and whether there's an opening for Hulkenberg in there as a sort of a placeholder instead of Giovinazzi while um, Schumacher's in a holding pattern, maybe. Uh, moving on to Williams, I think they need a pay driver and Hulkenberg brings salary demands. I, I'm not sure Hulkenberg wants to be in Formula One enough to pay for it. And I well, would well, say he, Nicholas... He, he said in Singapore that he can't. He's looked around for sponsorship can't get it so, so he cannot bring that to a team yeah and, and his salary demands we here let's caveat it that way were too much for Haas so they're likely to be too much for Williams given that they're looking for uh, someone who's going to bring sponsorship so Nicholas Latifi you know he's got a wealthy father um, they, they've, they've got enough money to send him testing so I'd say he's a more likely candidate for that seat uh, Red Bull Helmut Marco has said that it's between Alexander Albon and Pierre Gasly for the second seat, so no openings there. I, I don't have a window into Dr. Helmut Marco's brain, so I, I, and I'm not even sure he's made up his mind yet who which of those two is going to get it. Which leaves Toro Rosso. Um, Dr. Marco said Kvyat is likely to stay on front of the year, the man who's had more comebacks than status quo. So I, I don't really see... Uh, Hulkenberg fitting in there either whether or not there's there's anyone else um, within the the, the Red Bull firmament who could slot in I'm I'm, I'm just not certain that there's any space left come this this merry-go-round coming to a conclusion for Nico Hulkenberg yeah that's how I'd assess it as well Um, I think I think he should get the Alfa Romeo seat Um, not purely because of how Giovinazzi's performed and I think it's, it's notable that he is up in his game a bit which is probably unfortunate for Hulkenberg as well because any supporters on the Ferrari or the uh, Alpha Sauber side can now say look he's just getting into it let's give him another year but I think there's still a succession plan issue at that team which is that if we assume Raikkonen stops at the end of next year and then maybe Mick Schumacher comes up I agree with Codder's it's too soon for Mick to come up now. He definitely needs another year and he needs to put together a championship charge even if he doesn't win it. But if he comes in for 21, can you really have Giovinazzi and Mick Schumacher at that team? You know, Where's the development leadership going to come from? Where's, where's the consistent benchmark? With Raikkonen, he's almost like a gatekeeper at that team in that you know, if there's a level... And if you can get to it or get past it, then we know you're doing a really good job. But you know, they know what they're going to get from Raikkonen. And I think they're going to need another driver like that after he goes. I am assuming he's he's not going to carry on racing deep into his 40s. He and could be evergreen. He could be the next contract. Fangio. Well, I mean, he, he, 
he gives off the impression of putting in so little effort that maybe he hasn't burned much energy over the first four <laughs> decades of his life and he could keep going but assuming he doesn't I do think they're going to need some sort of stronger benchmark driver and I don't yet see that Giovinazzi could be that so if they're thinking long term they should maybe think let's get Hulkenberg in now let's have a look at him and let's see let's try and make sure that he is that man for for 2021 but I don't think that's going to happen I think Giovinazzi will hang on to the drive and then for all the reasons Connors has outlined already, I can't see any room anywhere else. So I've been giving this a lot of thought over the last week since the Haas announcement. I thought Haas would have been a really good fit and I thought it was a good time for that team to make a change. And I didn't really agree with Gunther Steiner's reasoning of, all oh, the car's so much of a mess at the moment, we can't go changing a driver as well. I think, if anything, they need that fresh perspective. They need someone else to come in and go, what the hell are you doing with this? This is why your tyres don't work. Or just change something else um, so I didn't like that because that's another example of conservatism in the F1 driver market which is quite often why we end up with quite boring uh, transfer windows if you want to call it that um, but back to Hulkenberg I, I do just think that you know the game of musical chairs is going to is gonna stop and he's going to be the one stood at the side wondering where the birthday cake is which is a shame because you know he's a great driver isn't he he's, he, he is among the best He's not, you know, he's he's perhaps not among the cream, but he's he's someone who you would employ to do a job. And generally speaking, although he does make the odd mistake, as I, I believe a certain Ed Straw might have written in a very good column uh, on in Autosport this week, uh, he, he's a handy driver. Yeah, very, very much so. He is basically in the hands of Ferrari here, because just to stress, Ferrari owns the seat that Giovinazzi is currently in. So it's Ferrari's decision. And how exactly that feeds into what they view is important for the wider health of the uh, of the Alfa Romeo team, should we say. I, I would imagine if it was entirely up to Fred Vasseur, he'd be thinking, hmm, yeah, actually, I quite like Hulkenberg in there for exactly the reasons you laid out, Glenn, and that they could then have a driver who can be a kind of longer-term benchmark. But does Ferrari care about that? Do, do they, will they just think, actually, Giovinazzi's done he's done well enough and actually we'd just rather he continue to build experience there and then he can go back and be simulator driver for Ferrari for the next hundred years if they, uh, well, they that, wanted to with, with ever more experience. That's Hulkenberg's only hope, I guess, is that if Ferrari go, you know what, this year's been a bit up and down. Giovinazzi did such a good job in a simulator on race weekends. We've put him in the Alpha. We know that he's never going to be good enough to race for the top team now. But let's get him back in that simulator role and help him transform our sort of. It was it was always the Friday to Saturday leap, wasn't it, Ed? Which always made your job a nightmare when you're trying to assess the field after Friday's running. And it got to a point last year where you almost had to factor in the fact that Ferrari were going to take a step forward because of all the work that was going on back at Maranello, and Giovinazzi was central to that. Yeah, and uh, you know Giovinazzi's done a, a decent enough job, but what is it? It's four points to Raikkonen's thirty-one off the top of my head. So that that's a pretty clear thing, but. Giovinazzi has been able to be quicker than Raikkonen and he certainly was in Singapore in fact he outperformed Raikkonen pretty emphatically in Singapore so that's uh, that also uh, comes into play as well so it's yeah it's, it's a difficult question but I it, it it's as Hulkenberg himself says it's really out of his hands he he just needs to let these things play out he needs Ferrari to think this would be a good idea he needs Red Bull to be sat there and think actually do we not, do you know we don't think Albon's ready for this and maybe and Gasly isn't either so do we need a stopgap, in which case they kind of have to look at a Hulkenberg, which they don't want to do, but there is a, a tiny chance that could happen. That's a huge long shot. But that that's the position Hulkenberg's in. It's not like he's he's got 
because it did look like he basically had the Haas drive if he wanted it and he could hang on to see if anything else came up but you know they never, never offered him a deal and for whatever reason they've they've stuck with uh, the Grosjean so yeah to, the, the 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 odds are not are not with Hulkenberg at the, at the moment but he is still in the game is he also slightly in Honda's hands as well then Ed because uh, what what Red Bull decide to, or how Red Bull decide to proceed will very much depend on how confident they are about their championship prospects next year in terms of how the package comes together you know they, they might feel that they can have a a, a, an evaluation or development driver alongside Verstappen next year if, if they're not imagining that they can push for the title. Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, Honda probably have reason to be quite confident given the progress they've made. I imagine, I mean, I always think from a, a team and engine supplier, you want the best possible driver combination because that's the way to give you the best points. And I think that's your first order thing. Your second order thing is then the question of, what disruption that can cause in the in the team, should we say? So, yeah, I'd, I'd agree that's that's a factor. But it's just, yeah, frustrating to Falkenberg that he's basically got no no moves to make other than, as he says, just to keep driving around, doing a decent job, and reminding people he's out there because he's entirely dependent on uh, on other things falling into place. I imagine there'll be plenty more chatter in the F1 paddock about the the remaining seats in Sochi this weekend. It's been uh, fascinating to have a bit of a look ahead to the weekend and talk about some of the the big discussion points. So thanks very much, Stuart Codling and Glenn Freeman. Uh, do check out AllSoSport.com for the latest from the world of Formula One and the rest of Motorsport, our plus subscriber area for in-depth content. Of course, if you like this podcast, we're out every Monday and Thursday, so please do subscribe free. Of course, there is, if you like Stuart Codling in that that's remarkable position, if you do think Codders is a voice you want to hear more <gasps> from, I can recommend a flat chat with uh, Codders at the, the F1 Racing Podcast, which you can find in all good podcast suppliers. And uh, would you like to give that a little bit of a plug, Codders, if your uh, faux outrage has, uh, has finished? What do you mean faux outrage? No, he's genuinely outraged. <laughs> I'm not as outraged as... Kenneth Williams was uh, when Derek Nimmo buzzed him for repetition of B in BBC in uh, just a minute many years ago. But yeah, it's, it's it's a great podcast, even if I do say so myself. And we have just dropped one uh, yesterday so where we talk about Max Verstappen and various other matters arising from the latest issue of F1 Racing. We talk about the future of Robert Kubica. We talk about uh, Daniel Ricciardo and Glenn Beavis butting heads. There we go. We got that joke in eventually, uh, which is a case coming to court very shortly we also talk about new teams are there going to be any new teams in Formula 1 and should there be any is probably the more germane issue and I hope there'll be plenty more very very contemporary references such as the one you uh, you gave us uh, a few moments ago just to keep the uh, the younger listeners uh, engaged so that's something to look forward to so yeah do check out Flat Chat with Codders we've got all sorts of other podcasts as well we've got the uh, the Tank Slappers podcast which is our MotoGP podcast the new uh, the new Gravel Notes podcast with David Evans which is uh, about all things rallying so there's plenty of uh, of Motorsport Network podcasts there for you to get your teeth into thanks for joining us we'll be back soon with another Also Sport podcast Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.